All right. So, well, let me, let me say it again for you, but uh, I just wanted to, uh, I started to tell us a little bit of your history transitioning from male to female and then back to male again when you accepted the Lord as your savior and um, been married for over 20 years to Casey, who was the shadow that we saw uh, yes. helping you with your technology. Mm-hmm. So, Walt, I didn't want to tell too much. I wanted to uh, ask you to basically give a little bit of your story as you go into your program tonight. And again, I'm, I'm very excited to be here, and I'm sure everyone else is as well. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you, Michael, for allowing me to come on and share with everybody tonight. It's been a long journey for me, and I know for many of you as well. So it's uh, it's exciting. Um, I'm here in the middle of the country speaking to all of you tonight. I'm going to start tonight with a little video that I made, and uh, that'll sort of help <clears throat> set the table for what we're going to do. So um, we'll just start off with that video, and then I'll come back in, and we'll discuss what we see in the video. We'll talk a little bit about, well, we'll talk a whole lot about what I've been through and uh, probably what many of you have been through as well. So roll that video. Let's get going. Thank you. Hi, I'm Walt Heyer. I started my transgender journey when I was four years old. I struggled with my identity all the way through my life, and I eventually underwent gender reassignment surgery, lived eight years as Laura Jensen, until I found the Lord Jesus Christ, who redeemed and restored my life so that I could give my testimony today. You know, I started my journey uh, in Los Angeles, California, when my dad would drop me off at my grandmother's house. She was a seamstress and she was making dresses as a way to make a living and decided to make me a purple chiffon evening dress when I was only four years old. And she put me in that dress and she began to affirm and kind of fawn over me and tell me how cute I was as a little girl. And um, that started within me um, confusion about who I was. Why was grandma so excited about seeing me as a girl? because she never affirmed me as the little boy I was in the little cowboy boots with the tore up jeans and a cowboy hat, which was much more of who I was. I became so kind of accustomed to the affirmation that she was giving me, I wanted it more. And so I ended up taking the purple dress home so that I could feel that even when I was at home and grandma wasn't there. And one of the keys to that was, she said, this is our little secret. When I took the dress home, my mother found the dress in the bottom dresser drawer and confronted me, and that ended my ever going back to Grandma's house. The story began to go through the family, and when Uncle Fred found out about it, uh, he began to uh, feel that I was fair game to be sexually molested. And so he began molesting me and teasing me and taunting me, and, and my dad was so perplexed by this, what Grandma was doing, that he began to exert a lot more discipline on me, thinking that if he was using sort of manly, heavy discipline, that he could sort of mold and shape me into a man. But what the discipline did, because it was so really harsh, really diminished who I was. And so I had these events before I was nine years old, being cross-dressed, being uh, disciplined with a hardwood floor plank and being sexually molested. You can understand that A little boy at that time, really, not only is he confused, but wants to escape into something else. And this is where, you know, you use this transgender identity to escape into something that isn't getting abused. I think I was, in my mind, thought, well, nobody knows about this other person that I'm becoming. 
I realized that, you know, who is safe to talk to? So I didn't really tell anybody about it, but went on in school to, you know, run in track. I played in football. I did boy things, but there was always the girl in the purple dress in my head that just kept haunting me, really, saying, you really need to change. You're really a girl. You're not a boy. And so there was this tremendous conflict between the, the girl in the purple dress and the boy who was trying to be a boy named Walt. And eventually I was in church and I saw a gal come into church and I told my friend, I said, I'm gonna marry her. And so eventually we got married when I was 21 and we had two children. I was married for 17 years. And eventually I went to work for American Honda Motor Company and became a top executive. But during that time, I was struggling so deeply with my gender identity because of what happened when I was a kid. It never went away. No matter how successful I was, I was struggling. And so I went to a transgender specialist who diagnosed me with gender dysphoria, administered hormones to me, talked to my wife at the time about it. We ended up getting divorced in 1983 in April. I underwent gender reassignment surgery and, and assumed the identity of Laura Jensen. I lived that way for eight years. You know, right after I had the surgery, I'm laying in the bed, and there's sort of this funny thing that you just go through and you think, wow, the weight of the world has now been lifted off of me. So you're in the hospital for four days recovering from the surgery. You have these feelings, you leave the hospital, you get on the plane. But I, I wondered at the time, you know, can surgery really, really change you? It doesn't eliminate being sexually abused. It doesn't eliminate the cross-dressing. It doesn't eliminate the physical abuse. I think there's a period of time where you're totally convinced that it worked and you're absolutely positive you did the right thing. But there's also the creep that comes in that there's times when you have that quiet moment with yourself, when no one's around, you're alone, and you begin to realize that, well, you know, maybe this isn't the right thing. Maybe this didn't fix what you needed to fix. So then I notified Honda about my change they terminated me and within three months I was homeless and living in a park in Long Beach and a full-blown alcoholic. And from the uh, homeless in the park, I ended up going to AA meetings. I ended up, uh, someone at the meeting took me to their home and I was going to church. And those were my two biggest things in trying to recover from my alcoholism. So I was going to AA meetings sometimes two or three times a day and going to church as often as I could. And so this one church that I went to in the Bay Area, I was kind of fearful about going to church as Laura, but I went in and talked to the pastor there. And I said, you know, um, I'm Laura. I used to be Walt. I'll be honest with you. I just want to know, are you going to try to change me back to Walt? And he said, no. He said, as a pastor, he said, my job is to love you. If you're going to change back to Walt, that's God's job, not mine. And so he allowed me to go to church. He allowed me to be in groups and they had a recovery ministry there. So I was seeing counselors. And so as I began to go um, seek out help for this, I found that I'd had a, a it, not multiple personalities, but what they call a dissociative disorder, which today we've learned that probably upwards of 30% of the people who identify as transgender actually have dissociative disorders, quite common. The other thing is body dysmorphia. And 
obsessive compulsive disorders and other disorders that are present also with the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So when I got treated for this and began to identify with it, going to therapy as many as once a day, every day for weeks, even months. And when I finally got to my fourth step and I had all these things written down on a piece of paper about being cross-dressed and being molested and we'd gone through them, it took over two hours, one by one, we're praying about them, he's dealing with them as best we can and trying to really turn them over to the Lord and get rid of them. And so when we were done, we went outside and he put a match to the corner of the paper and let it begin to burn. The gentle breeze took the flames in the paper and they just disappeared. And then he patted me on the shoulder. He says, okay, now it's time to go pray. An image came to me in that prayer and it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was reaching down toward me and I began to look at where his hands were and there was a little baby there. And I realized that that little baby was me. And he grabbed the little baby and pulled it into his arms and then he turned and spoke to me and he says, you are now safe with me forever. And I realized at that very moment that the Lord came to hold me and to redeem my life because he said, you are now safe with me forever. And that's where I was rescued by Jesus Christ from my transgender life. So then I began to live out my life as Walt. The Lord wants the transgender community in the church. The Lord wants them in the pews. The Lord wants them to hear the truth, that something happened to them that was horrible and that they had every right to feel the feelings they were feeling but the only way to really escape pain in your life is turn it over to Jesus Christ. Allow him to have the pain so that he can restore you so that the pain goes away. And so church leaders need to have their arms open to them and welcome them in, but listen to their stories. You know, it's never too late to be redeemed and restored by Jesus Christ. You can do that on your deathbed. It's never, ever too late. You're never too old and it's never too late. Put yourself in front of Jesus Christ. Admit you're wrong. Turn your life over to him and allow him to transform you back to who he made you to be. So as soon as Walt Heyer comes into the field, we'll go ahead and start his program again. And I hope that everybody has been blessed. I just want to mention something during this brief intermission that we got. I just received a text from an individual saying, thank you for your programs because it kept me from committing suicide. I, though a flush went through my heart. I would just like to pray for this individual right now as we wait for Walt to come in. Pray with me. Lord, I just want to... Um, lift up this individual that sent me that text. And Lord, you know who they are. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is working and has spared them from the tragedy of taking their life. Lord, it's our desire to help them, to lift them up, to encourage them, to inspire them. But most of all, Lord, to place them gently in your arms of grace. Lord, I pray that you are speaking to them now. I pray, Lord, that your angels are ministering to them. So Lord, thank you for uh, this opportunity to be able to tell not only our experience, but most importantly, to share the power and the goodness of what you have accomplished on the cross for each one of us. All you ask for us to do, Lord, is to come 
uh, before you and to just accept what you've already provided for each one of us. So for this individual, Lord, and for many others that may be questioning and contemplating uh, taking their life or uh, doing damaging surgeries or whatever, Lord, again, we ask that you would speak to them lovingly and draw them to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Great. We have Walt coming in. Walt, I don't know if you heard that, but I just got a text from an individual saying, thank you for your programs because I was just about to take my life, that your programs have actually saved me from taking my life. So um, I'm sure you're inspired now. I hope that you'll bring to us a, a really incredible message. Can you yeah. hear me, Walt? I can. Yeah, I'm ready to okay. go. I was just uh, waking up. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I was having my wife uh, move you know, because it's getting darker here. So I had her give me a little more, more light. So it didn't look like I was in a dark room for uh -huh. waiting for something to happen here. So no, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm grateful for this opportunity. Thank you so much, Michael. You and I have done work before. Uh, yeah. And uh, so it's just great to connect with you and all the people that are out there. Um, you know, uh, this is all about trying to prevent people from going through unnecessary surgeries and, mm -hmm. and taking hormones that are going to harm them. Um, and, and realizing that God made them absolutely perfect the way they were at conception. And they don't need a surgeon to carve them up like a sushi chef. They don't need a doctor to fill them with hormones and they don't need somebody to tell them that they need to change who they are. So how did I get here? How did this, how did this guy get to where he is? You know, it, I'd like to start, you know, I was an associate design engineer on the Apollo space missions early on in my life. I was married and had two children. Um, as an associate design engineer on the Apollo space missions, I was working in the area of cryogenics. I worked on cryogenic connectors. We were developing a connector that could actually uh, withstand the environment of cryogenics. It's 352 degrees below zero. Most things explode in that kind of environment. So because on the Apollo mission, there are many devices that had to withstand those uh, really radical temperatures. And so we were able to do that. I wrote NASA specs and I was doing this for, for several years. And later on, I moved on to the auto industry where I worked for American Automotive Company. And um, I actually was one of the three people who helped uh, develop the Acura division for Honda. I was a national operations manager. And all these things are to tell you that, uh, you know, I was, while I was struggling with my identity, I was married with two children and had what looked like a successful career. But behind the scenes, that what I gave you there was that, that pretty picture of, of somebody working at a great job and having all this sort of influence at the time, making quite a bit of money. But, but there was a secret. And the secret was that I was struggling with something deep within me about who I was. I was struggling with my identity. I didn't let everybody know it. I just dealt with it. I wanted somehow to come out the other side with this. I didn't want it to consume me, but yet it was. And I, I began to dive into alcohol and cocaine and other substances to, to try to cope and you know, when you start doing that, it makes you less capable of coping. Uh, thankfully today I have 35 years clean and sober. But what was interesting was 
when I continued to struggle working at um, Honda Motor Company with two parking places, a great income, desk, everything you could ask for. I went to one of those people they call a gender therapist. His name was Paul Walker. He was located on Union Street in San Francisco. He was also the, the original chairperson who wrote the Harry Benjamin International Standards of Care. And he had other doctors along with him, Dr. Laub and some other doctors that set in as they began to develop in the late 1970s in San Diego, California, what they called the Harry Benjamin International Standards of Care. Now, those standards have gone through many, many revisions. Uh, this first uh, draft came in 1979. I believe it was 80 or 81. It was changed again, and it continued to, to be transformed and revised. Well, I Walker became my doctor in 1981, only a couple of years after drafting the standards of care that, that was the instructions for clinicians in the diagnosis and treatment of individuals who suffered with their identity, like I was. And he talked about the, the future was going to the word gender dysphoria instead of gender identity disorder because it was going to be more well accepted because uh, they didn't want to use the word disorder. So he was right in that, that zone where he was telling me about, you know, years, you know, it wasn't that long ago, it would have been gender identity disorder, but now we're calling it gender dysphoria because it's much more palatable and, and, and less what they thought was easier for people to accept because it didn't have the word disorder by it. And so he diagnosed me with uh, this gender dysphoria, told me that the protocol was hormones to start with and then surgery. So I, you know, there was no Walt Heyer. There were no books out there like trans life survivors or paper genders. It was really nothing out there that was instructive or oppositional. Uh, there was only really one big voice speaking about this. Um, but in the early 80s, there really weren't a ton of voices actually speaking at all. So I listened to him and thought, you know, here I was, I'm a bright guy. I'm talking to a guy with PhD after his name. And he's telling me this is the protocol. He's the expert. And so I listened to him. And and I went through this. I got to hormone therapy and started on hormones. And and I was on hormones for a couple of years. And I, I kept visiting with him. And, you know, I was cross-dressing and, and living kind of a dual life as, as Laura uh, and, and Walt. And yet I was married. So come late um, 1982, uh, about 18 months after seeing my first time with Paul Walker, uh, I told my wife, I said, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm going to go through with this. This is, you know, I, I have this great feeling, this, this desire that this is really what's going to resolve all this conflict that I've had ever since I was four years old. And so, you know, by this time, I'm 41 years old uh, and I'm intelligent. I'm bright, right? Uh, smart because I was an engineer, smart because I've got an executive job. Um, but was I, and I listened to him and then I went, like I said, I went to see him several times. And then in early 1983, I said, now, are we, are we sure that I'm the proper candidate for this procedure? And this is really going to help me. And he said, absolutely. Yeah. He wrote a second approval letter 
for Dr. Biber to perform the surgery. So I went to Dr. Biber in April of 1983, and Dr. Biber performed all the surgical procedures, uh, bottom surgery, all that stuff, did the whole nine yards. And I'm still employed by Honda at this time, thinking that I can sort of put my life back together and work at Honda. And this was the early 80s, and not too many people were, quote, identifying as transgender then. And so when I told them um, later on, I, I had an attorney, and my attorney notified them, I believe, in September of 1983 that I had I, I was going to change my identity. They need to change their records, and I was going to be coming to work as Laura. And so they they asked me to take a couple of weeks off paid paid leave, and they kept me off until October of 1983. And they had me come in where they uh, said my position had been uh, the position that I was working at had been eliminated, and there was no use for me coming to work. That I was not being terminated necessarily, but uh, there was not a job there for me. And so they marched me out to the guard shack with all the things in my desk and and I was terminated. And so then I thought, well, I can get a job with BMW. I've got a great career. I was an engineer on the Apollo Space. I was I have all this history. I, I I can't tell you how many jobs I went to and I told them, you know, I'm Laura Jensen, female. <laughs> Well, that was that was an experience because it wasn't long after that when my wife had filed for divorce and I was in court paying huge amounts of money for child support and alimony, which she was right to have. Um, I ended up having no job and no income and still paying the child support and alimony. And it wasn't long after that that I became homeless and and desperate alcoholic laying in a second street park in Long Beach, California with vomit all over me. And I'm going, I was an Apollo space missions engineer. I was this honcho with Honda. And now I'm this guy in a rabbit fur coat dressed up like a woman in a second street park in Long Beach with vomit. Now, if you, if you look at this, you know, if you're, if you're as bright as I said I was, you wonder why in the world did I come to this place? And so I began to try to claw my way back. And, and I went to, you know, started seeing uh, psychologists and I started going to AA meetings. One person in AA meeting let me stay in his garage because I, he, he, I scared him so much that he didn't want me in the house. So he set his garage up so I could stay in the garage. And that was my journey, uh, my journey back was that garage laying there on a couch that they brought out and I'd had all the success and here I was. The reality had set in. And so while I look back at that time as really precious and important, don't feel sorry for me for having gone through that. That was absolutely the best time for me. Going through that process brought me to a point of reality, what life was really like. And that doing what I did, as I began to reflect, and self-reflection, believe me, was a healthy thing, because now I had no contact with my children, a little bit with my son. 
I was divorced from somebody I'd been married to for 17, almost 18 years. No job, and I'm homeless. And I started working, uh, cleaning dishes and doing all these things and, and going to AA meetings. And AA meetings were good for me because there's sort of a camaraderie there, and they helped me along. And then eventually I went to Fuller Seminary in Pasadena because I'd heard about a therapist there. And, and I met with this Christian therapist in, at Fuller Seminary. And he said, I have a friend in, in Pleasanton, California, and I've known him for many years, and I've talked to him about you, and I, I believe you need, you need a home environment. You can't just keep living on the street and going to AA meetings and expect to recover. But he says, my friend's a pastor, and he will be talking to you about Jesus. And I, at that point, you know, <laughs> that sounded pretty good to me. And so uh, a friend of his took me in his car from Pasadena, California, up to Pleasanton, California, and I went to live with Roy Thompson and his wife, Benita. And they took me into their home, their son and daughter. Their son had been hit by a car. He was in a wheelchair. And he and I became good friends as I was Laura. And here, John and I would go to coffee together. We'd talk together. And he was broken one way, and I was broken another way. But we developed quite a relationship. And he was probably 27 or 28 years old. And through this process, um, I ended up getting a job at the Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory in San Francisco. So I started commuting by bus and by train to San Francisco and working as Laura at the Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory. But I was still struggling deeply. And I had a a huge relapse with my alcoholism. And, and I ended up really uh, desperately trying to sort of end my life uh, with alcohol. And I confessed to Pastor Roy, I said, Roy, you know, I'm struggling. And to give you an idea how much I struggled with this, I here I was, Laura, and I went into a bar in Pleasanton, California. It's a biker bar. Most of the guys in there ride Harleys. And I went in and I started drinking. And I remember sitting there in a stupor and a guy came in standing next to me and he had all these chains off of his blue jeans with a skull head and all these things. I remember it just like it was yesterday. And for whatever reason, I turned to this big guy with tattoos all over him and I said, you know, you don't really look so tough to me. Now, you got to be a pretty big idiot to say that to a guy in a biker bar when you're drunk and you're, you know, a pretending to be a girl, dressed up like a girl. Well, they picked me up, two guys picked me up and threw me in the parking lot. And that was sort of my taste of what happens. And as I told, I had Roy come and pick me up and I said, Roy, I, I really think I need to get into a recovery house. And Roy made some connections and I ended up going into a recovery house in, in, uh, near San Francisco. And I was there for four and a half months and I started going to AA meetings then on a regular basis. And from that day forward, I stayed sober, but I also started going to church. The church hooked me up with some good Christian counselors and I began to unravel the, my whole unpack, I should say my whole life history and began to expose the hard truths of 
of what happened about my grandmother making a purple dress for me and telling me how cute I was. And when my dad found out about what his mother-in-law was doing, he was horrified and hit me with a hardwood floor plank. And then when my dad's adopted uncle Fred, uh, found out about me wearing a purple dress, he decided I was fair game to be sexually abused. So I had a purple dress, a hardwood floor plank and sexual abuse before I was 10 years old. And, and that was in the 1940s. There was no terminology for what I was going through. But as I began to work with these psychologists and these therapists, and I began to sort of touch on how this whole thing was gonna work about coming back, and you saw the video where it, where it talked about during one of those therapy sessions where the Lord came to redeem me. He actually reached down and held me. And it was at that moment that I realized that everything that had happened to me actually helped me get to where I am, that I actually needed those things, that, that that's, that's actually how I came through to where I am, and that it was... Everybody from that point on was here to help me move forward and to celebrate by honoring and glorifying Jesus Christ with everything I did in my life. My life was new. It was fresh. And by 1990, I had been not only redeemed and restored, I had detransitioned back. And in the corner of my Bible, I remember writing, and it's still there in big letters, it says, Walt. It's nice to have you back, January 1990. I came back. I detransitioned. And I began to realize more and more what this was all about. The surgery, it did not make me a woman. The surgery did more harm than it did good. The hormones only made you feel different. Yeah, it's sort of like taking a tranquilizer or something. They do make you feel different. They make you act different, make you feel like, oh, yeah, well, maybe I'm a woman. But none of that really took place. And as I've gone on and got married and then developed our website, sexchangeregret.com, I decided that I wanted to find out if there's other people like me who went through this and, and had good careers and good families and a good life, but somebody told them that they needed hormones and surgery, and it, and it took many years out of their life and, and harm them in a great way. And so the website, the first year, I got, I think, 700 hits on the site and maybe two or three emails, not much at all. In 2015, I had 356,000 views on the website and I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails. In the last seven years, Sex Change Regret website has had over three excuse me, over 2 million views, well over 2 million views. And I've got over 10,000 emails from people writing and telling me their stories, or maybe they're a therapist asking me about things or all kinds of people writing, but well over 10,000 emails because this is a huge issue and people are being harmed by it. And so knowing that I had been redeemed and restored by Christ, that website, Sex Change Regret, set my wife and I on a path to have that site as an open door if you're hurting and you're struggling and you don't haven't benefited from going through the surgical process that it's actually caused you harm, then this is the portal to come to. We're there for you. 
and we will find either legal help for you or, or therapy or we'll just be your friend. We're going to find a way to help you restore your life through Christ. And some of the people restore their life and, and they don't want Christ, but maybe they'll come to it later. I don't deny anybody the opportunity to, you know, detransition. I'll help them no matter what their faith is. But I will talk about Jesus. And so today, as I work with people, I work with people who are like a young man I'm working with now in California, 27 years old. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar one disorder and PTSD. And, and they, after working with him with these disorders for since 2013, they decided that it was time for him because he was struggling with his uh, identity. They said, well, you need hormones and you need surgery. That was in March of this year. And they cut his genitals off and identified him as if he did facial surgery, breast implants, and he contacted me less than seven months after that surgery and said, I want my life back. Can you help me? And so I'm working with him. I've worked with airline pilots. I've worked with doctors who've gone through this. I've, I've worked with teachers. Uh, I've worked with all kinds of individuals who thought this was a good idea. And they come to find out that all the problems they had were still there. They were just men now identifying as a transgender with the same problems that they had before they went through the surgery. And like myself, wouldn't it have been good for that therapist to sit down, Dr. Walker, and say, you know, the, the likelihood of that sexual abuse and the physical abuse and the cross-dressing may have caused you to really have a fractured identity and maybe it's not healthy for you to based on those things to take hormones and have surgery. Maybe we should look deeper into some of the causes like what could have happened. Do you have a dissociative disorder, bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder? So this is where we are today. You can go into almost any place, Planned Parenthood, and you can start your journey to what they call transgenderism. But from my viewpoint, there's, there's one fact that they can't overcome, that you can't make a man into a woman. Biologically, nothing can be changed. There, when that sperm hits the egg, the game is over. You're gonna be a man or a woman, you can say you're something else, but the fact is that you're going to be a man or a woman, period. And if you struggle with it, get help. There are people out there that really know how to help people who struggle with this. But please avoid the hormones. Please avoid the surgery. Find somebody who doesn't affirm you in this way. Find somebody that's going to help you dig in and identify the underlying issues. Because what I found out, the people who come to me because it says sex change regret, they've already been through it. And you would be surprised how willing they are to talk to me about their life. They really begin to open it up and, and they understand after the fact that what happened in their childhood caused these 
this idea about changing who they are. Wouldn't it be good if we could help them see that before they have hormones and surgery? That's, that's really been what my message is about. I would really prefer that we took some time and spent some real valuable time helping people try to identify what caused them to not like who they are and want to identify as someone who they're not and save them from this misery. 90% of the people that I've worked with are heterosexual men, married. Many of them, uh, after we find out, were, were sexually abused as a child. Many of them were struggling with pornography and maybe they got involved in, in, and didn't realize that they had autogynephilia or transvestic fetish or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder. You see, there's a lot of things out there on that menu, and it isn't all gender dysphoria. There's something much more sinister and something much more involved that takes more time. The idea of just filling somebody up with hormones and cutting off body parts, especially on young girls cutting off their breasts at such a young age, is, it, it's horrifying. And I think... If we can become the adults in the room and realize the harm being done. And one of the greatest examples that I, I love talking about because it points to how tragic some of this is. A boy, 15 years old, told his parents that he, he wanted to transition. So his parents took him to a gender clinic where they obliged in giving him hormone blockers. By the time he was 18 years old, his parents took him to the clinic. The surgeons did all the surgery breast implants, genitals removed, identified as a female. And at 19, he wrote me a letter and he says, Walt, he said, I feel like a Frankenstein monster. Can I get my life back? Because then when we begin to communicate, he says, I got addicted to pornography. My issue really wasn't transgenderism or gender dysphoria. It was an addiction to pornography. And once he realized this, he said, I don't really, I don't want to live this life as a female. I don't want my life to be identified as a transgender. My friends, it's the best thing we can do if we're really interested in helping people is to do all we can to find the underlying issues and help the person avoid the hormones and surgery and point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Where in Romans 12, 2, it says, do not conform to this world. This is where you'll find your life, is through Christ. Look into the eyes of Jesus. He came to me, but you can go to him. You can go to him on your knees and ask the Lord to come into your life and surround yourself with people who will affirm who you are, who God made you to be, and help you find your way back, just as I did. I think it's, you know, I'm married now for almost 25 years, next year, 25 years. I have a great relationship with my kids. I get the benefit of working with wonderful people who are detransitioning. And, you know, the, the latest one I've been working with 
he and I have exchanged well over 300 emails and I, I don't know, 60 or 70 phone calls. I'm going to talk to him tonight. And he's just so excited to be back, to have his life back and not be doing this whole transgender thing. And he says, I can't even believe how I got there. This is something we can all enjoy. And we need more people helping others who are struggling. There's a lot of us out there. And I'm grateful to see so many of them out there today. But we need more. We need uh, voices of encouragement, of hope, and people pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And people really care, deeply care about preventing somebody from unnecessary hormones and surgery that really can't be reconstructed. And the horrors of all that, we can stop it, or at least we can have an impact. There's a lot of people out there hurting, and we want them to have the joy of life where they can honor and glorify Jesus Christ. They can sit and speak to others about their transition back to living their life through the power and grace of Jesus Christ. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And I'm so excited to have this opportunity to share with you tonight. Thank you for this brief time, an important time. And I hope that you in your own life can find your own way to help somebody. If you're struggling, please ask for help. There's a lot of really good people out there who care about you. The Lord loves you, and so do the people who want to help you. God bless you. Thank you all for allowing me to share with you tonight. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.